Are they bringing forward the start of the season? And you, you've got the exclusive on it? No. I think this, when's the season start? You've got the 12th of, 12th of August. This is, this is very exciting, Chint. This is very exciting. It's not exciting. Trust me, it's not. Uh, could you, um, those who, of course, have spent the last week trying to figure out who Lord Charles is, I yeah. took them 12 seconds to Google and see an image. Um, to those who have done that, yeah. they haven't been waiting. But those who couldn't be bothered might right. want you to explain who Lord Charles well, let's, is. Let's say this is interesting. Right? You three don't know who Lord Charles is. I do right? now that yeah, I did I the 12 now. second of Googling. Oh, I, you've Googled it? Yeah. I wasn't informed, so I don't know who Lord Charles so is. So if you had to have an... You're an educated don't, man. Absolutely. I've read Mr. Don't get your hopes up. Okay. I've read Mr. It's, it's no, wildly informative no, and entertaining. No, wonderful haven't. stuff, wonderful stuff. Uh, you like Lord bit, Charles... you like the bit with the aliens? There were no aliens in it. There's no aliens, is there not? There's no there aliens. Were, there were three There's some aliens. at the end. Oh, well, yes, that's a different thing. Yeah. Appen- appendix 3 was about the aliens. Appendix 3? Did you not, make, did you not read the appendices? Got to anyway, appendices. let's get back to Lord Charles. You're an educated man? Yes. Lord Charles, what does that conjure... Lord, if somebody said to you, what do you think? Who or what could Lord Charles be? I'd have said a upmarket boozer in Wilmslow. <laughs> So you think it's a the public house? The Lord Charles. The, I didn't say the Lord Charles, no, true, did I? Yeah, I no. said Lord Charles. Yeah, that's true. Go on, who's, who's do, Lord Charles? Do you Charles? want to put him out is of his it, misery here? Because um, you've Googled him. Is it not the Conservative candidate for one of the, the Cheshire seats? No, he's not. No, no. <laughs> it's Lord say, Hinchcliffe. I would Woodford. say incumbent. <laughs> uh, the incumbent, yeah, sorry. So you've, you've cheated. He, he is from um, what would have been our... Early childhood. I'm trying to actually. I'm trying to think of a modern version of Lord Charles. No, what it's would be massively modern? anachronistic. Stormzy. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. Really not. No. Um, uh. He is uh, was. God rest his soul, I assume, a ventriloquist's dummy. Ah. Do you no, remember he had a monocle? What do you mean, God rest his soul? Well, yeah, he's a ventriloquist dummy. Is he still going? Does he still have Doesn't a life? He exist without Ray Allen, basically. Yes, but he. he, Does he have a life? Me don't die. They just get put in a box and say, "What are you going to do? What are you going to do?" And then they come out again and start working. What again, happens don't they? to someone when they die? Well, they, they get well, put in a box. That's a that's a <laughs> wide-ranging question. Are you saying that Lord Charles, what, is having to work well into his retirement age because of this? He was this well Tory into government. his retirement age when he was working. He ah. had a monocle. That's the monocle thing. That's okay. what I went down right. the road of Lord Charles. Yeah. Uh, there are so many people. Who didn't care? So there are very few people who are relieved to know who Lord Charles is. Thank very you. Very few people have got past the last two and a half minutes. <laughs> Welcome to Set Piece Many. This is the podcast where four friends talk football over food. By the time you hear this, breaking news: I will be married. Congratulations. Well done, Hugh. Thank you very much. We indeed. didn't think you'd see it over the line, but the, uh, the, the no, gift, no, no, no. We didn't think Gemma. Oh yeah, yeah, over the line. So uh, essentially, this voice that you're hearing now is not the same mature and reasoned one that you get as a result of committing to someone that you love for the rest of your life. It's still the reckless, slightly fearful one that comes with a lack of responsibility and still having time to change your mind. The this is amazing though. This is an amazing <laughs> historical document for the for the history of Hugh, of Hugh Ferris. That this is this is Hugh's voice. I thought you say humanity. No, humanity. no, Hugh Ferris. Hugh Ferris. <laughs> this is Hugh's voice. Not below. <laughs> you should listen to this on your mini moon. Oh, that's this true, will be yeah. like a reminder of, of It's like a time capsule. Yeah. Yeah, of what you were like in fact, before yes, marriage. When when this podcast is released, it will be during the mini moon. Because is there anything you want to tell future future Ferris? Don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> Back out now. Don't do that. Definitely don't do that. No, no, of course not. I, I well done you. Um, high five yourself. You've uh, got yourself the most beautiful wife in the world. Stop worrying about the canapes. Everything will be fine. That's true. Well, now that I've told you the canapes, you are satisfied about them. Yeah, so the seat plan looks okay. So seat I think plan be, has, I think has, be been, safe. has been revealed. So clearly, this is now after the wedding. So the fisticuffs that happened on table chin strap. Chin strap? <laughs> We've named, chin strap? We have named, or did name, all our tables after penguins. 
Gemma's favourite animal. So there's a chin-strap penguin? No, there isn't. There is, there is. Is there? It's true. Owing to the fact that you are... Mighty in the chin department. Yes, you are. You are chief of Why can I have been on Humboldt? I like Humboldt penguins. Oh, you're lovely. Not humble, you've oh. got a big chin. Are you on the emperor penguin table? Yes. The yep. top table is, is the emperor. Was the emperor? This is the, the, the tenses are getting. It's not all about you though, is it? Let's let's move on. So thank you to everybody for your kind words of support and your moral guidance and comfort and those people who have been providing that and will continue hopefully to do that into my married life are Steve Wyeth. Hello. Not married, but with two children, so you know, he might as well be. Uh, Rory Smith, married with one on the way. Yes. Andy Hinchcliffe as well, married twice, so he must be really good at it. Hi there. (laughs) Or really bad at it. Yes. Uh, Please do continue to... Get in touch. Maybe matrimonial messages of good support. Uh, at Set Piece Menu is where we are on Twitter. Setpiecemenu at gmail.com is our email address. So we are continuing today our series of summer shows that are pondering the question, what is English football? We've already had a couple so far, so if you'd like the full story, we recommend parts one and two. But for those who aren't bothered with chronology, here's a previously. What have we done so far? In part one, we asked, what do we mean by English football? Did we come to any sort of conclusion about whether it's ever existed in the past? We never come to a conclusion. That's the whole <laughs> point. Uh, we feel as though we'd reached this, a I, situation I, I, where we felt we knew I what we were we, talking about yeah. by the phrase English football. Yeah. Yeah. Then in part two, we asked, how has it changed and what has it lost? Did we answer that question yeah, suitably? Yeah, the, 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 the Premier League, 1992, things changed. We lost some things and we gained some things. Again, again beautifully <laughs> yeah. inconclusive. Yeah. Now for part three. We've done the past. Let's talk about the present and indeed the future. We will be asking if English football can restore its identity, even if it lost it, even if it wants to. What is the present and the future of English football? We will consider both domestic and internationally over the next few minutes. Well, so we st- we ended last week with the cliffhanger <laughs> that I created myself and I think makes me perfect for a job as a television screenwriter, which was to say that what makes English football English now? What is English about it? How do you... We accept that we've got lots of new ideas, we've got lots of sort of imported thoughts about how the game should be played and all the stuff around it. Got got an international fan base, It's you know, the supporters are as likely at big clubs to come from, from China or Japan or Malaysia or Brazil or wherever as they are from Moss Side and Moston and what have you. This, this is very Manchester specific. Um, <laughs> but for literative purposes, it's perfect. Perfect. Um, so what makes it English? How is English football still English? That's the first thing we probably have to have to answer. Well, we've, we've still got some things that you talked about in part one. We've still got the dynamism. We've still got the physicality. We've still got the inflated sense of self-worth. The, Absolutely. The, the arrogance. Have we not just blended that with a bit of... with some craft and some guile and some, some new ideas that have, you know, finessed a little bit what we had before? But, but also make, making those new ideas... A, the cornerstone, and B, the, the real thing that is pursued. It's it's now almost turned full circle, where mm. those new ideas are the very lifeblood of the progressive nature of the football that we're seeing. I do think you're right, Steve, but physicality and arrogance, are they something, are they, is that, are they traits that we want to be associated with? Or are they things that we, again, need to eradicate to make the game better? Well, the physicality is not a bad thing. I think you, you, it's okay. Well, elbowing somebody in the face. Not that, no, of course that, it isn't that. Not that type of physicality. But that, no. That hard-running, industrious, energetic... Never say Never die say attitude. die attitude is, yeah. is something that should be cherished, I think. And it's, it's something that, that foreign players and foreign coaches and foreign fans really enjoy about English football. Mm-hmm. So I think that's fair to say. The arrogance... Is there an arrogance? Uh, there's a curious arrogance about 
English football in that it simultaneously seems to regard itself as the best in the world and yet has a deep-seated insecurity about how terrible it is. Which I think is actually the cornerstone of English football. It's, it's English a, football's identity. Yeah. Its products are the best in the world, but its teams aspire to always be better than they currently are. Yeah. But I think there's also a, there's something deeper than that. There is a a belief that the foreign is inherently superior, and that's really cha- that's a massive sort of seismic paradigmatic shift in the way we think about football. That you'll you'll see it in the transfer market this summer that a club that's linked with an English player. A lot of fans will be saying, well, I'd much rather sign such and such yeah, from, from yeah. Roma or Lazio, because there is an assumption that, and it's to do with familiarity, I think, but there's an assumption that the foreign is better, that English is slightly, somehow, unsophisticated, limited. a little bit limited, probably won't, won't succeed on the international stage, it'll probably try quite hard, but it, it maybe doesn't have that, that final sort of edge of quality. So I think that that's definitely shifted, that's something that's new, but is now in, t- in intrinsic to English football. And you see that at the international level, where we have we go through this endless process of wanting to build the new Clairefontaine, or wanting to copy the Spanish model, or we should keep possession, or we should play like the Germans, or we should be like the ideas Dutch. ideas recently with the Germans, yeah. Yeah, and it's, it's this kind of sense that we should always look abroad. And the, you mentioned in the first episode the, of this mini-series, that the Barney Rone quote, that English football's identity is that it's continually looking for its identity. And there is an element of truth in that, that we are always looking elsewhere to say, how should we be doing it, rather than saying, well, this is the way we do it. So, And it works. And it, the reason for that is that the way we've done it in the past doesn't work. So you can't have that sort of self-confidence. But at the same time, you do have that arrogance of the Premier League's the best in the world. And well, the, 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 the Premier League... Just, just quickly, that paradox. Yeah. That paradox is very strange because, yes, there's... A sense of arrogance that we've been talking about English football about its its, it's self regard about mm. how important it is, but again there is that then difference between that and the team that best represents that, i.e. the English national team, which is massively insecure and always complained about being insecure and not having that sense of arrogance on an international scene. So it's, it's very difficult to to understand why that paradox has come about. Because surely are we saying the Premier League is English football or is the England national team? English football because if it's the national team the national team is terrible you put a squad of Englishmen together or 11 Englishmen out on the field year after year tournament after tournament we fail are they playing the English game in foreign competitions I know they have the influences at their clubs of all the foreign players so they're probably arguably technically better than, than England players of the past but we still don't seem to get anywhere so if, if it is the national team that is English football it's not very good, is it? Because we don't... It's not just about success, but it's kind of the brand of football we play. Do we play stylish football? I, I don't believe that we do. We go to tournaments and we are terrible. As a nation, we are terrible. But so that's it, a, is that English football or is it the Premier League? Is that what we should consider English football to be? An amalgamation of what, what is the, the great traits about the English game along with the, with the influx of, the, of the, the, the foreign players coming in? I think that's... That's probably the key question, isn't it? That's the which. Which do you think it is the national team or the league? I don't know. I suspect it. I su- I get, um, it's maybe not an either or. It's mm. maybe a combination of the two. Because one's a product, mm. a literal commercial product, and the other is a product of the indigenous players within yeah, the yeah. country. Yeah. So I, I don't think you can say one or the other, can you? They can coexist as being the, the identification point. They, they, in many ways, they're, they're, they're one in the same. That what succeeds is a league domestically, the Premier League playing English football in terms of that 20 team competition playing against each other is hugely entertaining and popular all over the world and has brought players in from from all over the world to, to enhance that that spread and interest. But that as a national team, 
playing against other national teams, that product does not succeed so well. It comes back to that physicality, the dynamism, the, the English... A lot of foreign players come to the Premier League because they can adapt to the speed and the intensity of it. And that makes for a fantastic competition within its own right. Mm. But in the same way as we've seen in recent seasons with the Champions League and English teams not doing very well in that competition, is that it just doesn't transmit very well once you take it outside of its ah, own borders. Okay. So to me, and this is, this is just a theory, I think the problem is that... Sorry, I, wasn't make, I didn't say that was no, actually no, right. No, it was no, just no, a theory. No, no, it's, yeah, yeah, no and yeah, it's, yeah. it's a good point. And I think that the, the issue you have, and it's, you, you've seen it with the with the England youth teams particularly, and we've obviously had a summer of huge success for the English English youth teams. The under twenties are world champions. They won Toulon yep, yet again. again. Yep. Uh, we, we are recording this before the under twenty one, so they might have won that. They they may not have done. It, it's fifty fifty. <laughs> one of the two minute, things that happen. Are there other teams in that under twenty one tournament? There are. Yes. We probably haven't won it then. Right. right. <laughs> You're not really stupid if they did win it. You know. I, they could win it. Yeah. Couldn't they? The <laughs> Ginger's shaking his head. They could do. But you look at the kind of the whole England DNA project, and this this has been a summer that's that's vindicated a lot of the work the FA have done in the last ten years, and that's that's brilliant. They have put a lot of thought. We talked about England not necessarily having the approach of students to football, and what the FA have done in the last ten years is, is they've said, all right, we're going to study it, we're going to we're going to learn more, rather than just saying this is what football is. There you go. We're going to learn and develop, and that's that's really praiseworthy. But is the football there being that, that, that those under twenty players have been taught in the academies? Is it what we would think of as that accepted definition of English football? Because I, I would think that it's not. I think that what they're taught is a much slower game, much more thoughtful, much more contemplative, which is hugely important, as Steve says, particularly in, in, in international football, but in the Champions League as well. You need to be more pensive about the way you play. You need to be smarter. You can't just run around a lot. That doesn't work. But I'm not convinced that's necessarily a style of football that, that English fans want to see. And ultimately, there's this huge thing that's left out about the Premier League. When, whenever we discuss the Premier League's failings, we will get to the stage where we talk about the players and the coaches. And at some point, we'll talk about the media as well. We'll say the media aren't helpful because they, they, hype, they hype everything up, all of us, say how amazing it is. They're blind to other leads, the qualities of other leads. They associate... They confuse a lack of familiarity with a lack of quality. So they say, oh, Serie A's like this, or the Bundesliga is like this. The players aren't as good. That's just you haven't watched as much yeah. of it. So you don't know how on earth you're comparing them. But we never talk about the fans. We never say that maybe a huge part of English football culture is the fans. And if you go to watch Premier League games, England games, and there is a spell of the game where a team is maintaining possession or resting on the ball or not pouring forward, the fans get kind of cross. Mm. And that that's hugely important. That's where it all stems from. It's what the fans want to see. What, what fans respond to is what teams feel they have to put out. So in the Premier League, you get this incredibly dynamic, exciting product because that's what the fans have been conditioned to. It's what they expect. It's what they've been brought up with. But it's not necessarily what makes you succeed. And I think the way that the English youth teams have gone about succeeding is by changing that. And they're fortunate that they often play in front of nobody. So there's no fans... To, to cast judgment to, yeah. to, to yeah. boo or to get restless when they're passing the ball about but that's what you need to do to be successful internationally because that that is what international football looks like it's that more patient style so we, we we've spoken about throughout this series the the idea of innovation being difficult to get through the English football system if you're talking about the innovation that is now currently happening at youth level surely isn't there an eventual 
generational shift so that everybody has grown up watching this kind of football so that they will therefore apply to it well this is the English football that I know because it's all the English football that mm. I've ever watched mm. and then that will be reflected in terms of the following generation's desire to see that because that's what they hark back to that's what they know and also if it leads to success whether it's an under, tw- under 20 level or in the Champions League or woe betide international senior level you will clearly get uh, a satisfaction from that which will rubber stamp it as a English football but be successful as well so if you look towards the future you're, you're looking at a redefinition of English football based on whether it's stuck to and based on whether it succeed or not yeah it's an English football that is that has been mixed with lots of different imported qualities and, and approaches and styles and beliefs some good some bad mm-hmm. And that, that has then, yeah, there'll be a generation of, of fans who've grown up with Premier League teams, but importantly with Barcelona, with Real Madrid, with Bayern Munich, watching them as much as they can watch domestic football, seeing what what top quality football looks like. Fans don't get bored of watching Barcelona pass the ball. You still you see loads of kids in Barcelona, Barcelona shirts. They're not saying, well, do you know what? They're good to watch, but I wish they'd punt it forward every now and again. <laughs> do you not think, yeah, English fans watching Barcelona, you kind of have a different mindset. You're not. If you're watching an English team, you maybe want them to be up and at them and get the ball mm. forward after three packs. You watch Barcelona. You do tend to sit back a little bit more and say, "I'm watching Barcelona. I can't. I can't imprint what I want on that mm. team. They're they're going to play their way, and I'm just going to watch it." I, they don't, I know you don't get as involved in it because it's not your team. It's but an aesthetic, you, yeah. not an emotional. Yes, pleasure. absolutely. Yeah. And I think once fans, it's very interesting that once the fans get involved, does it change the way that players play the game? I know what it was like when I played in domestic football. It was two or three passes. Let's try and get it forward. Let's look like we want to score the mm. fans seem to want that and you can actively feel that when you're not doing that international football is completely opposite keep hold of the ball at all costs yeah. incredibly boring I found it I wanted to play forward passes you encourage not to do that don't risk giving the ball away and you can sense the fans even thinking even against Saudi Arabia even against Saudi Arabia <laughs> nil-nil at Wembley what a game but you, you do get a sense that England fans you're right get to 60 minutes and say well it's, it's nil-nil we've had 65% possession but we haven't scored and then suddenly you can yeah. feel it coming off the, 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 the fans in waves so that then influences the way that the players play so it is a combination of players and it's not everyone says and I know what coaches say ignore the fans it's impossible to ignore mm. 40,000 people who are encouraging to do, to do one thing or play a certain way and we spoke in the last episode about the fact that fans are becoming disassociated with the game and that that is a bad thing about how football has changed since the introduction of the Premier League with all the money so if we're saying on one side that you need to remain as connected to your fan base as possible. We can't then say, well, tactically, it doesn't matter what they think. Let's let's play the kind of football that they hate. You, you've got to go somewhere in the middle, haven't you? You've got to be able to respect that without necessarily have it dictate to you what you should be doing, particularly if it's the wrong way of playing it is, or an unsuccessful way of playing. Because mm, match day fans think that they've been completely forgotten. They've been cut out of the equation by escalating ticket prices and the fact that kickoff times move around to satisfy a global audience. But we're actually saying that despite the fact that the people inside the ground are only a very, very small percentage of those who are either watching the game or who support that team, that they can still have a huge influence yes. on the way that their team plays. So maybe they're not the, the forgotten factor as, as much as, as they lead you to believe they, they are. D- do you ever think when you watch international football, why do England not play again? Why do they not at least try and play like those players would play in the Premier League mm. with a bit more gung-ho, with a little bit more front foot physicality? The problem is there's too many Englishmen in the national team. 
If you get two or three Englishmen in a, in a domestic team, in a Chelsea, a Man United, a Man City, they look world beaters because they're surrounded by world-class foreign players. You take very good, clearly very good English players, put them all together. And I don't just think it's in terms of, of their technical ability. It's their mindset and their brains and psychologically how they go about the job as well. That has held us back for so many years. And it will develop in time. The more the English players are around European players, they, will, they, they need to become more like Italians and Germans and Spanish. But whether that's a cultural problem, I've talked about this so many times that that is a, a major problem. So the, the problem is you put so many Englishmen together, invariably it fails because they don't know what to do because they haven't got the brains to work out what is necessary, even though they're doing it at their clubs day in and day out. When you put them all together, I think culturally, I've, I've seen it myself, there is a problem there with, with kind of groups of people who don't speak to each other. I still think that is a but that's a cultural problem that if you don't solve that and people are willing to work together, then suddenly you can develop very quickly. But is there another issue that at the Premier League level, the vast majority of the players who define the style, not every player on the pitch defines the style of a team, the vast majority of the, the players who do that are probably foreign. Yes. They, that's what, they import brains as much as anything else. So it's people like David Silva. There's still not an English player who... Deli Alley is probably as effective a number 10 as David Silva. He'll score more goals. You, you pick virtually any Premier League team and the first player that probably springs to mind with any of those teams is probably a foreign player because you can identify more. It's not necessarily the top signing or who's, who's on the biggest wages, but it'll probably be, as you yeah. say, someone who defines the way they play. And it's in, 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 in most circumstances, it will be a foreign player. So it's Coutinho, who's Liverpool's brain. Mm. It's Silva, who's City's brain. It's Sanchez and Ozil, who are Arsenal's brain. It's United, I guess you could say, Carrick is, is maybe not far off. The, the kind of the yeah, most influential player when he plays. Spurs is a is a good example mm. of the exception to that rule. Well, no, not did I say that Spurs are as much defined by Christian Eriksen as they are by? Yeah, yeah, yeah. by yeah. I mean, yeah, not not saying yeah. that he's as good as, as Ali or Kane, but mm -hmm. he, in terms of setting up how they play, you'd say Eriksen and I'd say Moussa Dembélé are the two that are really important to the way Spurs play. That they set the tone for everybody else. They do the thinking. For the and, other, and Harry the Kane the and Deli Ali get the, the headlines because of everything that oh, they have be, done. Because they're amazing so, players. They're fantastic players. What but I'm then, saying is this is yeah. an understandable mistake that I just made. But it's, an interesting, no, <laughs> it's an interesting point that Steve says. If you take those Spurs players, because that's going to be that is the core of the England team, isn't it? Mm. With the fullbacks with with Eric Dyer, with Harry Kane, they don't seem to be able to transmit that dynamism. Okay, they've they've got a few of those foreign players, very good foreign players around them at Tottenham. You think if you take five or six of that Tottenham team and put it in a national team? Wouldn't it be able to replicate what it does for Spurs? But it doesn't seem to happen, does it? Especially because there is there is no evident drop off in quality of players yeah. between Spurs yes. and the England team. So again, is it the Englishmen together that causes the problem? It's uh, not so much the Englishmen together. It's the absence of foreign players. Mm. That they that there's still one. That's maybe one thing that English football hasn't quite got yet, which is the ability to produce players with with that brain who can fact, lead the way and be the focal point. The, the Scottish lad Chelsea have just signed the 15-year-old Bobby Dilmore. A friend of a friend was at a tournament where he played uh, in France a few months ago, and a scout from Barcelona was was with a, a scout from a Premier League club, and they were talking about play, youth players in Britain who could play for Barcelona. And he said that the, the the one youth player in Britain he'd seen that would fit into Barcelona was Bobby Dilmore. Not because he was technically better than all of the others, but because he was the only one who had that brain, mm -hmm. who had the ability to think through a game, which is something I think we don't particularly prioritise in England. We still think of the players that we get excited about at youth level are still the quick ones, still the strong ones. It's still the ones who want to pour forward all the time. They've produced lots of number 10s and lots of creative players, but there's not anybody who's necessarily able to, to run a game in that sense. And in that... 
way that, yeah, that Silver can, can do, yeah, yeah. or that Coutinho can do, or that N'Golo Kante can do. They run games. They think through the game. It's not just about how much they can run around. And that's something that we are probably still lacking. So if we've decided that English football has opened its minds to influence from all and sundry and indeed crave it now, such as how the generations have shifted and their attitudes have changed, um, Alex Ward got in touch recently to ask about the idea of a quota of English players in starting lineup or squad. I know that there's, there's clearly the restrictions at the moment. But if there are to be, say, for example three or four English players in a starting 11 regularly, would they get to a point where they, ha- they are able to assimilate that intelligence, that ability, that then it would improve the, the fortunes of the English national team, which you could say are forever going to be a mediocre international team that might have a tournament that it wins mm. above its station, like a Greece, like potentially even a Portugal yeah. and Denmark back in 1992. They might have got to the point where they they have reached this level that they will never be better than. than. It's only the, the the sense of arrogance and of perhaps even built up, as we said, by the by the media that that actually they will never get to the point where they are consistently contending yeah. unless these things happen. Yeah. Twenty years now. For, for, for the future success. Well, if it can happen to me in my late 20s, actually take on board and be influenced very quickly with the ideas and the ways of training and thinking about every, everything to do with the job that you do, surely for younger players, the only way they can develop is not necessarily playing in, together in Engli- English national junior teams. It's playing and being around these senior foreign international players because hopefully if they do have a brain like saying about Bobby Gilmore Mm. if he can soak it that's why Barcelona look at him and say he's got a bit of that now if he's around Iniesta or any of these players and he soaks some more of that up imagine the kind of player that he can develop into and that's why Barcelona will look at him because he has the ability to use his brain to think about the job that he's doing not just about controlling the ball and scoring goals or making tackles it's thinking about the dynamics of the game but I would have said what so that that should young players should be able to sell that but English players are they able to do that I I don't know well there must be there's no reason why English people can't learn things there's no kind of cultural or or educational deficit in England that means they can't change but Mm -hmm. not foreign languages not foreign languages now why would you it's Brexit this is the problem we're English, do we really need to put ourselves out that much when Germans, the Spaniards, the Italians will do anything to get where they need to be? But I think what Steve said about the fans applies to players. So just as we're going to have a generation of fans brought up on what Premier League football or international or Barcelona or Real Madrid or Bayern Munich, that that whole kind of globalised football looks like. There'll be kids now, your kids, who are five and... Uh, Six and three. Six and three. Uh, That's embarrassing. Uh, You can't be expected to remember that. I think it's just impressive. I know their names, to be honest. You know one of their names because he shares your name. They're lovely kids. Jemima and Dorothy, lovely Lovely kids. Lovely kids. Lovely kids. kids. But the... Just as we'll have a generation of fans who, who don't have that same urge whenever a team's passing the ball about to, to go, oh, get it forward. We'll also have a, a generation of players who come through. And maybe that's part of the success of the under-20s for all that the praise has been for St George's Park or for the, the inland DNA thing that they've institu- instituted. Maybe it's partly that they've grown up watching foreign players mm. close but we'll, up. But we'll be a generation too late again. Yes. Ah, yes. Maybe it's, that's English football's ident- identity. It's, it's been done. By the time we catch up, it's moving exactly. on again. Time, 10 by, years the time the times. by the time, you know, Rory is in his mid-twenties and is willing to accept that, you know, football can be played at various different tempos, 
the rest of the world or you know you in particular let's just make this clear that's your Rory my Rory yeah, yeah. you've, you've already gone through he's only just mastered the art of the throw-in <laughs> <laughs> right I'm ready to play now oh no we've moved on oh god <laughs> exactly yeah, they just, you know, it'll be that's really interesting everything yeah, yeah, else will yeah. have moved on again and we'll be said oh well it'd be my grandkids who need to to learn to accept the way that things are now I, I, the, the, the quote of, uh, you know I, I'm, I'm cons- I thought the same as Alex who got in touch regarding the quota thing that if there was some way that we could circumnavigate employment law and say that every Premier League side had to start with three England qualified players in their starting lineup, surely that would be a step in the right direction but from what Chinchin said about international football you'd still be left with the same problem is the minute you took those English players out of their club side and put them all together yeah. they still wouldn't know what they were doing there's, yeah. another, there's another problem with quotas and it's something that they have in Russia and there's, there's actually a, a big parallel between English football culture and Russian football culture that I think probably goes underexplored. They have a quota system in Russia and all it's done is increase the value of Russian players regardless of their quality. So if you're a jobbing Russian left-back Andre and Andre Hinchcliffe off. off yeah <laughs> just a sort of and Bugarov <laughs> <laughs> that's where you were going with that the um you're going to play. You're going to get. You're aiding. You see it in China as well. To be fair, where they where they also have a quota. You're going to play regardless of your quality. You're not. You're you're removing the meritocratic element from the league. So what what you'd end up with if you introduced a quota where you have four or five English players? Yeah, probably that's why you couldn't do that many. It would need to be two or three. Yeah, but they probably. To be fair, there's probably most teams have got two or three in in, in them anyway at the moment. Mm. But the yeah, you'd end up with with this premium place on English players even more than there is now where they have to play regardless of how good they are. I think there's two things that are, are interesting on that subject that are kind of tangential. One, Brexit, they, they, football cannot be an exception if they, re, if they re, redraw immigration law. They, what they'll do is they'll, they'll basically apply a softened version of the current work permit criteria that we have for Brazilians and Argentinians and what have you to EU nationals. So the top ones will still get in. Chelsea will still have Andolo Conte and Cesc Fabregas and Eden Hazard. Arsenal will still have Mesut Ozil, those types of players. In the Championship and lower down, they won't be getting the French midfielders in because they're cheaper, because they won't meet the work permit criteria. Which is to play international football to a certain degree. And that is probably a good thing. I don't have anything against the globalised football economy, but I I don't necessarily think it's, it's particularly worthwhile having a lot of imported players in the lower tiers. I think there's no reason why there can't be English players there. But the other thing that I think is really important, Oliver Burke, the Scottish lad who went to, to RB Leipzig, and Dominic Solanke, who's just signed for Liverpool from Chelsea. I wonder now whether we might see this over the next two or three years, that the English kids who have been hothoused and gathered together by the really big clubs to be sent out on loan, I think they might represent quite good value in the transfer market. And I know that Leipzig, and there'll be others, Leipzig are looking at that that market and saying, hang on, there's good players there and they don't cost very much money because ultimately the big clubs don't want them or need them. Mm. And there's no reputation for them to trade. Yeah, so they've barely played any, any football. So you, if you're Leipzig or a clever German club or a clever Spanish club or a clever Italian club, you might be looking at the 30, 40, 50 good, talented young players that Chelsea, City, Liverpool, Arsenal, Spurs, United have got and thinking, well, hang on. They've been brought through just so they can be sold on because for every the way that the system works is for every 10 the, or 20, the clubs will assume one will make it into the first team. The other 19 will pay for everyone's education and a bit of a profit to, to be put towards a bid signing. So why don't you go to Chelsea and say, all right, we'll give you five million quid for, you know, whichever kid you've got who's been in the England under 20, 20 squad. Why don't Roma go to Spurs and say, we'll give you seven million quid for Josh and Oma? 
because they're good players they're not getting chances the clubs want money to sell them it helps pay for everything so I wonder whether they might get more of a chance from somebody working out this is this is a market that we can exploit and I know that Leipzig are the only they're the only club at the moment I know who are definitively looking Mm. at that market and thinking there is talent there to follow up on your two tangential points mm. two further tangential points one for each so Brexit if you're a championship club who like foreign players coming in then hope for a soft Brexit not a hard Brexit yeah. <laughs> uh, but also is, is this conversation about players almost the thing that trumps the, the philosophy the system the England DNA if a series of players come through who are world class whether they're produced by the system or it's just pure fortune doesn't that become the overriding factor into whether your your team is a success if if you're taking for example Deli Ali and Harry Kane as we have done in this conversation has been two examples of excellent young English players if you're also saying that they are the best of that generation they're not necessarily at this stage as good as the best of other countries so is it just the fact that at the moment England are not producing players and some of that under-20 side might end up being those players who are essentially world-class? I don't know if we had a conversation about how much we should put that in air quotes as well. Another listener got in touch, Tom Waterman, to say that Kevin Keegle and Michael Owen are the only English players to win the Ballon d'Or in the last 50 years. These, you don't have these players on an international scale who actually can make an impact on that sort of award, which I think we trust as being a fairly good award, a fairly good representation of who is good at that time. England are at this position where they they are just above average. They haven't got the players to be any better. Now, whether those players are produced by a system or whether those players are developed by Leipzig or Roma saying to Chelsea, we want to, to develop your players further. We're going to give you those those, those players football to play. I just it, it seems like trying to find an answer in amongst all this might just be better players and having the fortune that those better players come through at the same time. The funny thing about players is that we're all conditioned to think about it's about facilities and infrastructure and all that, but it, it isn't, is it? Because Argentina produces more players than anywhere else in the world and they don't have any infrastructure or any facilities. So there is an element of good fortune about it. Or, or is it about culture? Is it about, does this bring it back to what the whole thing we've been talking about, that you'll get the players who can, who can beat the world when your, cult, when your football culture is right? And for a long time, England's football culture hasn't been right. Maybe that's the issue. Whereas now we're maybe getting, because it is a more mixed, more kind of, uh, what's the word, alloyed culture with other, with other elements, maybe it is getting closer to being right. Oliver Burke was, is an interesting name to bring up because I've seen... RB Leipzig quite a lot during the course of the season. He, you know, his first season there, and he didn't get as much game time as people thought he would. Maybe they because they weren't expecting RB Leipzig to have the outstanding season that they they did, and he would get the opportunity maybe to be blooded in the first team. Uh, so hasn't quite worked as well for him there as perhaps it would have been anticipated. And I have made this point before on the podcast. You know, as, as there's a lad Michael Hector who's got his roots with, with Reading and Chelsea who spent the season with Eintracht Frankfurt and got to play in the cup final against Borussia Dortmund in front of 70,000 people at, uh, at the Olympic Stadium in Berlin that's the kind of experience that surely more of our young English players need if they're not going to be playing in the Premier League surely there is a sense they would be better off playing in big leagues elsewhere in Europe than they would be in the Championship or, or League One where they're going to be exposed more to, to the kind of environment that would, would get them, them Premier League ready. But 
those those players, if they are going to make the move abroad, will have to do so with the open mind that the the Chelsea loanees, Manchester City loanees who go out into other parts, who those that succeed are generally not English-born. Andreas, uh, Andreas Christensen, who is a Dane, who spent two years at Borussia Mönchengladbach on loan from Chelsea. Chelsea have decided they've seen enough from him in the two years at Gladbach that they want him back. Gladbach would have mm. loved to have kept him in a throwing money, but he has developed enough during those two years that now Chelsea feel like that's been a satisfactory experiment. But what remains to be seen is whether young English players mm, can, do that, can yeah. do that rather than young European players moving moving around. Yeah, I think play, whether, whether young players are playing in England or abroad, playing games is one thing. Learning from that experience is, is about brains and is about culture. And it's about appreciating what you're you kind of involved in and learning how to improve it. Just playing games is not enough. It's having the brains to understand how to improve. It's really interesting, isn't it, that we're saying that to advance English football culture, players should go abroad, which shows what English football culture yeah. has become, that it draws in influences from all over, that the days of that isolationism are done. And it's fitting that we end part three by talking about those foreign experiments that Steve was mentioning. We are indeed moving abroad like a young English footballer into part four, where the navel-gazing will stop. We'll consider whether we can answer the same question about what is English football um, in different and other countries. That'll be in part four, or as we will call it, the dessert part. As Steve prepares to offer up his tart, we ask you to ignore the sense of uh, dramatic expectation. In the meantime, please subscribe, share, rate and review. We humbly ask you once again to continue to find room for us in your podcast schedule. Uh, we are continuing to monitor email and Twitter. Here are the reminders at setpiecemenu and you can email us at setpiecemenu at gmail.com. Thank you to Steve, Rory and Andy and to you for listening. We'll be back with part four of our Set Piece Menu summer series for you to enjoy very soon. My t- your tart it sound like is an actual like char- character from the Game of Thrones, is it? Uh, no, I thought it was something else. You don't really hear... That's a word that you, you don't hear much anymore, what? isn't it? Tart. You'd hear it a lot in Minder, that type of thing. Yeah. 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 Arthur Daly, all that business. People don't know who Minder is. No, they don't know. People don't watch I used to love Minder. Oh. Uh, I've been meaning to mention this to you, by the way. Um, once again, this has happened before. But as, as you know, Andy and I frequent the same gym. You can tell from yes. our, uh, yes. our comparable physiques that we spend just as much time there as you But we were there on, we were there on Monday for the, the, the boys' swimming lesson. Mm. And afterwards, as we came out of the dressing room, George, my youngest, three-year-old George, Daddy, is, uh, is Mandy here tonight? Is Mandy here? I was like, what? Ma- is Mandy? Mandy? Mandy. And he means you. He was looking around the gym for, for Mandy. Andy. Do you know that's not the first time I've been caught? My, our Portuguese trainer, João, João. João calls me Mandy as well. Well, there you go. But that, originally he got it wrong. But then when I said, you do know I'm called Andy, he said, oh, yeah, 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 Mandy. And just carried on calling me Mandy. <laughs> Although he is a big lad. Ex-bodybuilder, you don't mess it, about is with that, him. Is that a Manilow tribute? Is it, oh, Mandy, well, you came and you gave without thinking? That is me all over, really, yeah, isn't exactly. it? exactly. Your son thinks I'm called Mandy. Yeah. And I'm, I've not told him any different. Put him straight, Stephen. <laughs>